This morning, we're going to begin a new study in the book of Colossians. Uh, this has been on my heart to do for quite a while now, and I know that I stole the lady's thunder here, but uh, I heard, out the, heard that the women are actually doing a Bible study in the book of Colossians. Uh, it seems as where the Spirit would have us be as a church this morning. So uh, I look forward to what the Lord is going to teach us all week long. It's going to be wonderful. So would you please bow your heads with me and pray as we begin this studying this book and just ask the Lord to, uh, to bless him with me. Lord, Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We want to thank you for the word that's been delivered to us down through the ages, intact, holy, pure, good. And we just pray, Lord, that our hearts and our minds would be opened by your spirit to receive the things that you would teach us and show us or that we would become changed more and more every day into the image of your son, that we bring you glory in our everyday lives. We pray that the influence of the world upon us would be less and less. Your kingdom would flow through us more and more. So we just, we just ask Lord for your help and we love you. Amen. Well, please open with me to the book of Colossians chapter one, Colossians chapter one. Now, if you have a study Bible, how many of you have a study Bible? Raise your hand. Don't feel bad if you don't, because the next thing is a blessing at the beginning. Usually at the beginning of a study book, uh, study Bible at the beginning of a book, it'll give you things like the outline of the book, the title. It'll talk about the title, who wrote it, historical background, uh, themes, all that kind of stuff is usually the beginning of a study Bible. So if you call CCF your home and you don't have a study Bible, we would like to gift you one. We have study Bibles available in the back right now. ESV versions, they're not cheap, which is awesome because we want to invest in the word of God, in the, in the people of God. Amen. So if that's you, just say, I'd like to have a study Bible. And so come, come up to me or Marcus or where's Fred that Fred, right? <laughs> Fred or Erica or Carol, and we will get you a study Bible today. So that's a, that's a blessing. It's a huge, huge gift. That being said, Bible scholars put the book of Colossians. It was written around 60 or 62 AD. So if Jesus died somewhere around 30 or 30, th between 30 and 40 AD, um, yeah, that's not far removed from the cross. And so Paul is writing this letter uh, within a generation uh, to the next generation. Uh, but as we look at verse one, we see who wrote the letter uh, to the Colossians. Read verse one with me in your mind. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Paul, the apostle, is the author of this letter or this epistle, same word. Uh, what was customary in the letters of those days is in the very beginning of the, the, the letter, you would put your name because it was written on a scroll. So you didn't have to scroll all the way to the bottom <laughs> to find out who wrote it. They put it in the beginning. So Paul writes it in the very beginning and he lets us know that he is writing it. And he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The term apostle means one who is sent or one who's sent on a mission. The term apostle is, is an exclusive uh, term used for very select people uh, to be an apostle. You must have been one who was an eyewitness of the risen Jesus Christ. And so 
that's very important to know. So we know from Acts 9 that Jesus Christ appeared personally to the Apostle Paul in a very radical way as he was headed to Damascus to go in prison and kill Christians, persecute Christians. That's what he was doing. And then the Lord Jesus appeared to him on his, on his way and said, you know, Saul, Saul, why, do you, why are you persecuting me? When, you, when, when the church is persecuted, when you're persecuted, you're at, it's actually a, Jesus takes it personally. And Paul was persecuting Jesus Christ. And he says, hey, why are you persecuting me? But we see from Acts 9 that Jesus personally appeared to Saul of Tarsus, who we call Paul. And he was a witness of the resurrection. And Jesus says, I'm going to go send you to the Gentiles and to the children of Israel, but mostly to the Gentiles. Acts 9, verse 15 and 16 is when Jesus tells Ananias the plans uh, that God had for Paul. Because remember, Paul's the guy going around killing Christians and he tells a Christian, Ananias, Hey, I want you to go meet Paul. He's like, eh, I'm a little nervous about this. And then he puts him at ease in verse 15 of Acts nine. But the Lord said to him, go for, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and Kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And boy, did Paul suffer. He suffered immensely. He goes, he boasts about it, not so that everybody goes, oh, look at what Paul did. But he was trying to boast in his weakness about being apostle. That's in Corinthians. But later in Acts 26, 16, Paul recalls to King Agrippa. So he's actually brought before a Gentile king and he's telling him his conversion story. So he's, he's sitting there waiting around for two years, I think, in, in Caesarea. And uh, in verse 16 of Acts 26, he says, that what Jesus said to him, he said, but rise and stand upon your feet. This is Jesus speaking to Paul for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things which you have seen me and to uh, which you have seen me and to those to which I, I will appear to you delivering you from your people, from the Gentiles uh, to whom I am sending you. And so he's sending him to the Gentiles and he's delivering them from the Jews to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified, set apart by faith in me. So I, I say all this to say is that the Bible is, is in acts and in the epistle. It's just saying that Paul was sent by Jesus and he recalls it several times about how that happened. Jesus personally appeared to Paul and commissioned him for this purpose. And Paul says of himself, even though he's describing himself in first Corinthians 15 regarding being an apostle, he calls himself the last of the apostles. He calls himself the least of the apostles and he calls himself the most unworthy of all the apostles because he persecuted the church. I would encourage you to read first Corinthians 15, but in verse verses eight through 10, uh, but in verse 10, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am by the grace of God. I am what I am. I was nasty, but God came and got me. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by God's grace, he wrote half of the new Testament. <laughs> Pretty cool what God can do. And so Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And you got to bear with me because I have to give background to the book. So uh, it's also interesting to note that from Paul's comments in chapter four, flip over to chapter four, and you'll be, you'll take solace in the fact that there's only four chapters, which means it'll only be a half year. 
Just like football math. No, I'm just kidding. But really quickly, look at chapter four with me. We can tell that Paul is probably writing this from being a prisoner in Rome. How many of you are thinking about others when you're in difficult circumstances? How many of you are thinking about when you are laid up in sickness or when you are going through a hard time or when you've been persecuted, you're thinking about how to bless others. Well, this is Paul's mindset. He was tenacious in it. And if you look real quickly, chapter four, look at verse three. He says at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on which uh, sorry, on account of which I'm in prison. So Paul's writing, he's saying, listen, pray that while I'm in prison, God opens a door for me to preach the word. That's his mindset. Isn't that awesome? In verse 10, he says, Aristarchus, my, my fellow prisoner greets you. So he had other people who were in prison with him as he was uh, there in Rome. And then Paul signs off in verse 18. I, Paul, write these things with my own hand. Remember my chains referring to his imprisonment grace be with you. And so he mentions being imprisoned also in the book of Ephesians, Philippians and Philemon. And so those four books are referred to. So Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians and Philemon are referred to as the prison epistles, the prison epistles like first, second Timothy Titus are referred to as the pastoral epistles. These are the prison epistles. And, and in Acts 28, Paul was a prisoner in Rome. He's awaiting trial before Nero, which was not a good thing. Uh, and Luke writes of Paul in Acts 28, 30 through 31, that he lived there for two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so this is, there might've been several imprisonment installments of Paul's imprisonment there, but most likely this is the one where he's at house arrest in Rome, where he was sharing, um, was writing these. And so Paul is writing to the church of Colossae from prison. Look back at verse one. We also see that Paul is writing also with Timothy. We have Timothy was with him, either in prison with him, but most likely alongside of him in his sufferings because he sends him in other epistles, those prison epistles to go to them. Um, Timothy was Paul's right-hand man. We know that I'm not going to get too into depth. Uh, Timothy is called his true son in the faith in first Timothy one, two, Paul also said of Timothy in Philippians two 20, that Paul had no one else like-minded like him. In other words, like he was exact, he was exactly Timothy's heart was exactly like Paul's and his mindset was exactly like Paul's, although he, he struggled and as we all do. Um, and so Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God and our brother and Timothy, our brother, Paul's writing with Timothy. They would have known that, you know, it's like if, uh, if we're, if we're getting a letter from Gary and someone else and, and Gary and Susie, we go, Hey, it's Gary and Susie. We, we know them. We know their love. I know some of you don't know them, but we do. And so Paul is, is writing to the saints, uh, there in verse two, check it out to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae grace and peace to you from God, our father. So Paul is writing to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Colossae. The term saint is also translated as holy or holy people, God's holy people. And that's what saint means. It means holy. Um, 
The people who have been redeemed by Jesus are a holy people. You are set aside from God out of the world to himself for his own special purpose. Do you know if you're a Christian, if you've received Christ as your savior, if you believed upon Jesus, if you are a born again believer, there has been a spiritual transaction that has taken place, an irreversible spiritual transaction. He has taken you from the kingdom of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of light. You are no longer a child of this world. You now are a child of God. I know we all say we're children of God in the sense that we all have originated life from him, but not all of us live. When Jesus Christ gives you life, you become a child of the living God. And we cry out Abba father as the spirit fills us. And we're new creations in Christ Jesus. That's what he's talking about there. Or so to be holy is to be set apart uh, from the world, but for God's special purpose, you're no longer common. You're no longer uh, a spork. You're fine China. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? You're set apart by the blood of Jesus Christ. The NIV renders this verse as holy people. How many of you have that? Yeah, I call the whole holy people. He calls them writing to God's holy people. And I think this is a better in some ways because the word saint has a lot of uh, Catholic imagery, Roman Catholic imagery associated with it that implies that someone is a super Christian and that's not biblical. That's that you don't, you don't have that anywhere in scripture. It doesn't talk about us being super Christians. Uh, we are super saved. That's uh, that's, that's the reality of that. So someone who has been born again is a saint. You're a saint. You don't get to be sainted afterwards. You are a saint because Jesus Christ made you a saint by his blood. It's his holiness and his righteousness that makes you so. So if you're born again, you're a saint. You've been set apart by God. That's good. And so Paul is writing to God's holy people to an actual holy people in a place. It's called Colossae as if you were saying Walla Walla and think of the people of Walla Walla. What, what are we known for? Onions. We're known for onions. What else are we known for? Wine. What else? Wheat. What else are we known for? Hot air balloons. What else? Prison. We have a demographic. We have a people. Are we uh, on a main highway? Are we kind of out of the way? Do we, do we provide commerce? Is there, is there an influence within our culture? Where does it come from? Prison. We've got three colleges that are plopped in the Valley. And so just like us, these were real people living in a real place with real influences around them. What may, what are the major uh, religions in Walla Walla or, or sects of religions? SDA, what else? Catholics, Mormons, atheists, agnostic, Adventists. Yep. We got all that. Yep. Yeah. So you've got a, we have a lot of philosophies that are influencing us. How many people are influenced by Sunday mornings versus YouTube? Social media influence. Lot of influence through social media. So philosophies fly into people's hearts and houses and homes 
that aren't necessarily scriptural and what we believe. And there's a way of life and a way of living that people are influenced by. So too, the people, they did not have Facebook and all that stuff. They had scroll book, but it was different, but, uh-huh. but anyways, he's writing to God's holy people in Colossae. There's a little map there. It showed you where it is. If you look to the left, there's Ephesus. It's up there kind of top to the left. So they're kind of in the middle of what is called modern day Turkey or what you would call Asia minor. They would call Asia in the day. So if I say Asia, that's what I'm talking about. Turkey. And so Colossae was about a hundred miles East of Ephesus. The church was probably founded by a guy named Epaphras. Uh, as we'll read in verse five, most likely uh, while Paul was in Ephesus during his three year stay. So Paul was on the coast in Ephesus and he was there for three years. And two of those years, he was teaching at a place called the school of Tyrannus. And um, God did a massive work there so much so that in Acts 19, 10, it says that all the Jews and the Gentiles, they heard the word of the Lord. And so God just was sweeping through this pagan culture. His word was penetrating. And, and many people believe that Epaphras was one of those people who heard that and then went back to Colossae, shared the gospel and the, and the church was born in Colossae. It could have been that Paul went there, but most likely that's how it happened. Because as we'll read in verse five, that it was Epaphras who gave them the word and they first heard and believed. And so uh, we know from history that these writings, uh, uh, that uh, from, from these writings that the Colossians were by majority, a Gentile group with a minority of Jews. And so there was a heavy pagan influence. Uh, the city was a large city along a major trade route and they specialized in trading wool and textiles. And so they had a lot of, they're very, um, you know, trade savvy, I guess. And being in Asia minor at that time, there were heavy religious and philosophical influences. That's what I was sharing that with us. Um, remember Alexander the great went through and just, and just captured everything. And that, that brought in the Greek influence everywhere in the region. And so there was, there was the religion of, of, of Greek religion that would come in the various philosophies, the philosophies that would, would sweep in mixed in with paganism. It was a hodgepodge of all this type of stuff. And so what happened is that there were heavy religious and philosophical and and cultural influences contending with the faith of the believers there. Is that what's going on today with us? Are there philosophies that are influencing us about how to interpret the, the scriptures about, Oh, you know, forget the first five books of the Bible. Those are all just stories that comes from a philosophy that comes from a way of looking at life and an understanding of things. Is there a philosophy about, um, let's just say human sexuality. Where does that come from? And why is there a philosophy about what love is and what it is, what it isn't? Where does that come from? So there's these influences and philosophies and there's religions and all these things mixed together. And this was pulling at the hearts of believers, pulling them in different directions because listen, this is where they came from. This is who they were. This is what they got saved out of. This is who their family members were. This is, this is the influence of everything in their lives, both Jew and Gentile, which leads us to some of the reasons why Paul was writing to the church. One of the main reasons that Paul is writing this church was to protect and correct because some false doctrine philosophies had started to influence the church, which they have and they do. And they do today. 
One of the main pressures facing the Colossians was the pressure of Gentiles. That's non-Jews to go back into paganism or to mix paganism with Christianity. That's one of the influences that was there to do a hybrid. And we see that in our culture all the time. Let's mix modern Christianity with the modern culture. And we throw it all together. Sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it because we're so immersed in the culture. So the pagan culture that believers were saved out of worshiped many false gods. You had the worship of Isis, the worship of uh, Serapis, uh, of Helios, of Demeter and Artemis. Uh, and you can go have fun uh, learning about all of them. And so this, this culture surrounded them. The worship of these deities were integrated within them. And that's what they grew up in. They participated in, they were around and their families were in. And so the pull was strong, right? You guys experienced that at all? And so the call to persevere in the face of all this was something that Paul would, would preach about and, and encourage them and remind them of. He would press that home. Another reason for Paul's writing was to combat the elements of philosophy of what would later become known as Gnosticism. So this Greek philosophy that kind of morphed into something, I'm not going to get too deep into it right now, but there was a, um, the general thrust of Gnosticism, the Gnostic heresy was that there was a, there was secret knowledge to be gained, secret knowledge to be gained um, that could only be gained by certain people. And you kind of leveled up. And the idea is that everything was created long ago from this one emanation or the source and that the, there had been several emanations or versions of that, that had spread out throughout the ages or whatever it is. And, and in order to get to that knowledge, you had to learn the knowledge of all these emanations going back to the source and all this kind of stuff. And so you leveled up and the more you had the secret knowledge, the more spiritual you were and what, and, and there's a lot to it and I don't have time to explain it. So I'm sorry if I added confusion, but this gained secret knowledge was centered around the philosophy that said that matter, the physical universe, the body, for example, is evil. All things physical are evil and all things spiritual are good. All things spiritual are good. All things physical are evil. Now that has ramifications. If you have a divorce between the spirit and the physical, Right? because you can do whatever you want physically with no consequence. Cause only what matters is what? Oh, but I'm spiritual. That's not what the gospel says. So there there's implications, but one of the main implications that there would be one of the main uh, issues would be that Jesus came in the flesh. That Jesus actually took on physical form. And Paul addressed this. The philosophy opposed that Jesus came in the flesh. And the thought went like this in this philosophy, God, who is spirit is good. And if Jesus was in the flesh, he could not be God for, because the flesh is bad. Does that make sense? So I, I know this is kind of like, we're stepping into there. We're trying to relate it with something we know. But this Gnostic heresy kind of, if it reforms itself throughout the ages, even in our day today, where we deny the deity of Jesus Christ, or we say that he was God or not. We, but some say that he was 
you know, at a certain moment he was, he was empowered to be God, but he never really was. There's just all these exceptions that are made in various Mormonism or Jehovah's witness or whatever it might be that just deny Jesus Christ as being God in the flesh. And so Paul addressed all that stuff. He wants us to know that Jesus is God and he explains why and how. So we're going to learn about Jesus being God. And at its core, the philosophy attached the sufficiency of Christ. It attacked the sufficiency of Christ to save the sinner fully. So Paul addresses that stuff. So the philosophies of the day were infiltrating and undermining believers in the church. What philosophies are undermining and infiltrating you regarding who you think Jesus is regarding what sin is and what it isn't and what sin is acceptable and what sin isn't acceptable to God. Uh, you know, all that kind of stuff, how we, we delve up all these things um, according to the philosophies that we want to ref- have reflected in our own evil hearts as opposed to what's the truth. And so Paul talks about that stuff, you know, so about sexuality, like for example, for us being influenced on that male and female, what is a male? What is a female? I mean, fundamental things are, are being turned over in our society. Things that have been since the beginning love. What is love? Is love, you can do whatever you want. That's what love is. Or is love according to truth? Morality and so forth. So these things are, are influencing us. We're just not in Colossae. We're in Walla Walla. The thing's the same. Another reason Paul wrote to the Colossians was to confront the Jewish legalism. So the Gentiles had issues going on. Well, so did the Jewish believers in there. They had legalists coming in uh, through Judaism who said that that faith in Christ alone was not enough. That you not only could believe in Jesus as the Messiah, let's just say, but you also had to be circumcised. You also had to observe the Sabbath. You also had to observe new, new moons and all this other kind of stuff. And so Paul addresses that the legalist. So the Gentiles and the Jews, they all had these attacks coming in there at them. And so Paul addresses these things. And this is why Paul calls the Colossians here in verse two. I know it's like, this is long. You're only in verse two. He calls them God's holy people. What does holy mean? What does it mean? Set apart. You're set apart from all this nonsense. God has saved you out of it into himself. You're no longer flowing according to the ways of the world and the philosophies of the world and all this stuff. You are now in Christ. You've believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're a different people. You're in them, but you're not of them. You're in the culture, but you're not flowing with the culture. This is important. And so Paul calls them holy. And he calls them faithful. Meaning this is the call to persevere in the midst of difficulty. He calls them faithful. This is what Christians are. We're faithful. Meaning we are following our faith. Make sense. We're following in the footsteps of Jesus. 
And so before Paul begins to teach them and direct them, Paul tells them then how he's going to pray for them. Now, real quickly, if you're looking at the book of Colossians, I would say to make it very simple, it's divided into three major sections. First, I would just say uh, part one is prayer. So just kind of, we're going to go through how Paul prays for the church. And I think we can learn about how we can pray for one another. So we're going to take this week and just take a couple verses and then we'll take the rest of the week, uh, the next week to go over chapter uh, to the rest of chapter one. So we're going to jump through these things, but then he jumps into what, what I would, would call a principle or doctrine or doctrinal principle. If I'm trying to do three P's, it is, uh, it just doesn't work for me. I just don't do it. So in other words, he's going to tell them how he prays for them. And then he's going to teach them doctrine, what the truth is. And then he's going to go into practice. This is how you live according to the truth. That's how he divides it up. Okay. So just let you know, that's the big outline there. So before he begins to teach them, he wants to tell them how he's praying for them. And this is how we can pray for one another. If, if this is, this is a spiritual prayer that I want to be praying like this for the church. I want us to be praying like this for one another, not exclusively, but this is great. And for our brothers and sisters who are across the valley and around the world, let's be praying like this for them. And so in verse thir- thir- three through 14, Paul gives us a snapshot of his prayer for the church in Colossae. Look at it. Praying for the church. We always thank God. We Always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Paul's saying, we're always praying for you. Now notice that verse three, Paul says his prayer for them is one of what kind of prayer? Prayer. What? We always, what God? Thank God. He starts out with prayer of thankfulness. That's important. It isn't just, and by the way, notice this as well. It isn't just, I thank God. It's a what? We thank God. He and Timothy, he and the other believers, whenever they're praying for the church, they pray together. That's important. It's a we thing. Notice, did you guys notice in the Lord's prayer? It's not my father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is heaven. Give me my day, my daily bread. Forgive me my sins. What is it? Yeah, it's an us. It's an R. It's a we. We are to be praying together. We are to be thanking God together. We are to worship together. It's a body. So no lone rangers. Yes, there's time to pray alone. We know that. We are to pray alone and that's faith, but there's also that massive emphasis on we. So notice it's a, we no doubt Paul was praying alone, but Timothy was with him and others. And the first thing they prayed when they came to mind is they were thanking God, the father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the prayer were directed towards God, the father. This is who we can pray to now. This is who Jesus made the way so that we can come to him, to the father, Matthew six, eight, right? Jesus taught his disciples to pray for the, he's to their father. When you pray, pray to your father. So when we pray, I know we mess up. We pray to Jesus. We pray to the Holy spirit. Don't worry. He's pretty forgiving. 
But in general, our prayers go to the father through Jesus Christ. That's how, that's how, that's how he lays it out. We can go right to our heavenly father, his father, our father. It's pretty awesome. So we always thank the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and Paul lays out the reasons in verses four and five for his overflowing, continual thankfulness. Why uh, is he thankful? Why can we be thankful for one another and for, for the church? Well, since we heard verse four of your what faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, Paul's thankfulness flowed from their faith, hope, uh, love, and hope. It's a common theme, faith, love, and hope, faith, hope, and love, right? And so first of all, faith, he's thankful for their faith. In Christ Jesus, this means that the believers in Colossae, they actually believed in Jesus. When we preach the gospel and someone believes, when, when we hear of people coming to Christ, we're going to go, oh, bummer, man. We're so thankful because we know that that is a huge thing. That's a very difficult thing. When Jesus comes into someone's life and he transforms them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light by his grace. And so there's a thankfulness that they've, they have faith in Christ. When we first heard of your faith, man, ever since then, we've been thanking God for you, that you believe in him. You have faith in him. They heard the message of sin and the coming judgment in God's great love and mercy given to anyone who would turn from their sin and believe in Jesus. I love that. Someone preached the gospel to them. Someone decided to open their mouth. Someone decided to lose their lives. Someone decided that them being alive was more important than their own, than their own comfort. Amen. Epaphras did it. How are we doing on that church? Not to give you a hard time. It's challenging, man. I got lazy. So I just start just doing it. Anybody else? Let's not let that slide. Let's continue to pray and ask God to give us those opportunities to share with the lost. Like Epaphras did. He went out there and he preached and shared with whatever limited knowledge he had. And people believed in Jesus Christ there in Colossae and a church was born. Isn't that awesome? Is there a room in our prayer life to thank the Lord for what he has done in here in the people around you to look at them and say, Lord, thank you that they know you. Thank you for doing that work in them. How about our brothers and sisters and other churches around this Valley around the world, man, we should be overflown with thankfulness for what God's doing. Amen. And what he's going to do. But let me ask, what's the evidence that someone has believed? What's the evidence of faith in you, in me? What's the proof? Well, it's the fact that God's spirit is now in them. We know that he sealed them, sealed us as believers. And what is the fruit of the Holy spirit in the life of a believer? What's the first thing? Love, love for God, 
and love for one another. Love, agape love, God's kind of love. It's called sacrificial love, a love that's charitable, a love that thinks of others and is willing to give for God. So agape the world that he gave his only son. That's the love of God. It's an undeserved love. That's the mark of a believer. And this is why the enemy has a philosophy of love that is counter to that, that mixes a form of Christian love with worldly love because he wants to undermine the truth. But God's love is according to truth. They do not contradict one another. Truth about sexuality, truth about marriage, truth about all those things that we are struggling with. And so love is not love. (laughs) Love is God's love. It's how he says it. He's the inventor. He's the originator. It emanates from him. And this is the kind of love that was displayed in them. Our faith in Christ is proven by our love for one another. I know that you're a believer because you love one another. That is the proof. How do you love one another? There's a lot of one another's in the new Testament. You bear with one another. You forgive with forgive one another. You pray for one another. You give to one another. You sacrifice for one another. You spend time with one another. You prioritize other people above yourself. You pray for one another. I mean, just, just do a word study for one another in the new Testament. You're going to be like, Oh my. But we know that Jesus says in John 14, if you love me. Yeah, that's one of them. But in John 14 says, if you love me and he says, I'll send the, I'll send the spirit. But in John 15, 12, he also says, Jesus, says, this is my, well, if you love me, you'll obey my command in, in John 14. Right. But what happens in John 15? He says, this is my command that you love one another as I have loved you. How did Jesus love you to death? He loved you to death. He loved me to death. Right. Not so that we would stay in our state, but he loved us out of it. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> he loved us out of the mess we were in, out of the philosophies and the worldliness and all that stuff. He loved us out of it. And he is loving us continually out of our messes. But back in first three, Paul is thankful to God that they have faith and is shown by their love for all the saints. In other words, believers love other believers like Jesus loved. Is that true of your life or is it not? Don't try to justify it. Don't try to say, well, I remember back five years ago. I know love is a continual thing. Is it a way of life about you? And I see so much that it is. Flip over to first Corinthians 13 with me. This is important. First Corinthians 13, the love chapter. You want to know what love is? I want to know what here it is. He, he did show him, but it's not what he's thinking. Yeah. Well, he's a foreigner and God wants to bring him near. It's Ephesians. Okay. So 
In first Corinthians 13, the love chapter, Paul gives us an idea about what God loves looks like in our lives. Check this out with me. They were a very gifted church. They were talking, speaking in tongues and they were doing all this kind of crazy stuff, but there was a lack of love. I say crazy stuff. I think God had given them gifts. So I don't want to dismiss what God was doing, but there it was not done in love. You can be a very gifted and talented person and not be loving in what you're doing. There's a lot of very gifted and talented dictators throughout the ages. Just saying, right? You have a lot of very gifted and talented, maybe bosses or CEOs or parents or whatever it is. But what needs to underline that as believers is love. God is the most talented and gifted of, you know, I mean, that's just an oxymoron. He is all he is. And yet from his very being exudes love. First Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, the ultimate sacrifice, but have not love, I gain nothing. Think about that. The world has a philosophy of what love is and sacrifices and all these types of things. But what is God talking about when he talks about love? Paul is saying that love is central in everything that the spirit does, that a believer does of who God is. So what does love look like, like in a life of a believer? Look at verse four and he starts to list just a cross section, not exhaustive, but just look at it with me. Love is what? Let's just stop on verse that first thing. Love is what? Are you a patient person? Hurry up. <laughs> I struggle with patience. It's not. You know, I sit there and go, you know, we make excuses for it. The problem is I'm just fleshy. I'm not filled with the spirit. When I'm like that, I'm allowing the wrong person to rule in my heart because love if I'm full of the spirit. Love is patient and it's kind and does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. Does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Anybody feeling convicted alongside with me, please. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. In other words, it's not saying I believe everything. It's there's a, there's an element of hope in it. Hopes all things endures all things. It perseveres. Love perseveres. Love never ends. Doesn't stop loving. It continues to love. Paul describes the impact of God's love in a heart that has faith in Christ. It's someone who has love manifested in their life, this kind of love. And when Paul says he is thanking God for their love for all the saints, this is what it looks like. 
That's how they were being with one another. That's how it was expressed and manifested. Paul goes on in verse eight of first Corinthians 13, as for prophecies, they'll pass away because they were prophesying as for tongues, they will cease as for knowledge. It will pass away for we know. And he starts to explain in, in an analogy about what, where we are now and where we're going to be before the Lord. And that's what this is. This is not about the Bible, go, the Bible replacing anything. This is about our, how we're operating now and what's going to happen then. And that's the context here. Anybody else that says differently, you're wrong. I'm serious. Cause then we get rid of the gifts of the spirit. That's it. That's as for prophecy, they will pass away as for tongues. They will cease as for knowledge. It will pass away for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, what is the perfect? The part, the, the partial will pass away. What does that mean? He goes on to another analogy. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly. We all see in a mirror dimly. Now we're like children. Now we are prophesying in part. Now we're doing all those things. But then face to face, face to face with whom? With God. Now I know in part, but then I shall now fully, even as I have been fully known. In other words, now is the time when spiritual gifts are necessary. We're like children. We're on the earth. We're speaking as children. Gifts are important. All those types of things are here for us now, but we're not there yet. It's not fully come about yet. This is the time for those things. That's what he's saying. This is to be in his presence that we're to be, you know, that is to be in his presence. And on that day where no, we, and he goes on and he says here in verse 13, look about it. So now faith and hope and love abide. These are the, these three are the greatest, but the greatest of these is love. And what he's saying is, is faith. We're not going to need faith anymore when we're face to face with Jesus. I know that sounds sacrilege because this is the world we're living in. Faith is the substance of those things not seen. When we're face to face with him, we no longer need faith. We no longer need to prophesy or tongues or anything. We're going to be face to face with him. Amen. We no longer have to have hope. Sure hope. By the way, I got to hurry. But it's the, it's the sure hope. It's the absolute hope of what God has promised for us. Our salvation, the salvation of our souls, the salvation that began when we believed and is going to be finished when, when, when he calls us home. Salvation is that big picture. Saved us. He is saving us. And on that day, he will deliver us into glory. So faith is for now. Hope is for now, but on that day we see him face to face. Those are no longer needed, but what endures? Love never ends. That's what he's talking about. Make sure whatever you're doing, it's like him. If he's in you, it's going to be in love in his kind of love, in your gifts and your prophesying and your words, your actions and all these things together. It's the proof that his spirit's in you. That's what he says. I praise God 
for your faith in Christ. That's manifested basically in love. And the reason that it's manifested and it's propelled is verse five, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Their faith and their love are rooted in a sure hope. It's not a guess. When we say hope, we're like, oh man, I hope the Seahawks do something, you know, at the combine. And I hope they get, you know, it's like, mm. no, this is sure. Hope is the idea. A living hope as Peter says it. It's an absolute hope. First Peter three, eight is this is what is meant by a hope that is laid up for us. Blessed be God and the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. God's given you an inheritance in Jesus Christ because we're his kids. That's imperishable. Not like our earthly inheritance, imperishable, that's undefiled and unfading. And it's kept in heaven for you. Oh gosh. I wonder who's keeping it after he already explained the eternal value of it and the unbreakableness of it. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Wait, I thought I was saved. Yes, you are but you're also being saved and he will reveal your final, the finished work on that day. Ready to be revealed in the last time in this, you rejoice though. Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. See, we look beyond we're looking to the promise, faith, hope. And this you rejoice though for now a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is revealed, that's when it, you cash in. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your, of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Are we looking forward in hope? And as we look at the promises of God and all that he's going to reveal in Christ Jesus, it should shape our now. It should shape our now. That's what he's saying. Listen, you have faith in Christ. You believe and you're loving one another because your eyes fixed on his promises. It's fixed on what's going to be revealed. And so you live in a way that endures and it presses and it's focused on him. You love, you put off the flesh, you put on the spirit, you push through all this stuff because of the prize. And Paul will spend different letters explaining this stuff. This is who we are. This is our, this is, this is a Christian. Faith in Christ in his promise of the salvation of our souls starting now, but realized in full on that day, the day we stand before him and receive our inheritance. So now we love him. Though we have not seen him. And he says, if you love me, you obey my commandments. And it's going to be seen in how you love one another. Paul's saying, I'm so thankful. 
Do we pray for one another in these ways? If you just read ahead, please for me this week, because Paul gets deep and he's talking about these things that they would have the revelation and the manifestation, the understanding as God just opens their hearts and minds to the reality of all of this, that there's a block that needs to be unblocked, that the spirit would want to teach us. And so we ask him to open our hearts and then he starts to teach us and show us. And we start to go, Oh my goodness, I've been living in the dark. And we go, Oh my, this is reality. That's my home. This is real. And hope is the anchor behind the veil. Hebrews says. So we're going to see Paul pray for the church that our understanding of reality would be opened up so that we can comprehend more and more who Christ is and what he's done for us. And let me just say that there's going to be warfare in your hearts this week. The enemy does not want you to be excited about any of it. Crucify the flesh, press into the spirit, pray, discipline yourself, lean in and let him teach you and, 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 and grow you up. And would you please pray that for me? I need to grow up and to grow into these things. Amen. Can we grow together? I want God to be bigger, not bigger. He is who he is that we would see him as he is more and more. Amen. And so we'll pick up in the middle of verse five next week and we'll take it through the end of verse 14 regarding the prayer that he prays. And just check out that stuff. Pretty intense. So Lord, we want to thank you for loving us. It's like being born into a family that's, it's royal. I think of some of these kids who don't realize like maybe their parents are, have been super famous actors or people and all the things that they have at their disposal because of who their parents are. And, and I know there's a lot of negative connotations, but Lord there's for us and you, we've been adopted into your great and marvelous kingdom. And you are our father because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in whom we believe. And in him, we have great, exceedingly great and precious promises that are not going to be taken away. that can't be moved that are ours. And it's just a matter of time. But now Lord, help us live in light of that and not be fooled by the simple things around us. Help us to be fixed on you. And Lord, whatever faith we have in you, if it's not manifested in love, we're off. Lord, grow our love for one another according to truth. Soften our hearts towards one another. Don't let any bitterness come between us. Help us to be patient and kind and just bearing with one another in our weaknesses. We need your spirit and your grace so much. Help our love to grow so much and be so transparent in our marriages, our families, our relationships, that the world looks on and sees you alive. And so, Lord, bless 
our study in Colossians. And the ladies, Lord, bless them. In the name of Jesus, amen.